to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a weekly well of wishes in a wasteful world. <laughs> I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 800, well over 800, post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a geezer on the go, and I'm going to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster if it kills me. I won't let it kill you, I promise you. I appreciate it. Thank <laughs> you so much. I've got lots of plans to keep you going for a long time, darling. Well, I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostess, absolutely so tough. She skins porcupines and wears them at the mall. <laughs> That's Actually, the latest what it, fashion. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Here she comes on the red carpet. Actually, what I've been doing is packing for our trip tomorrow. Oh, that's right. We're going to... Oregon. That's right. Oregon. Oregon. Or, or, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's Oregon. Multiple pronunciations. Depends on where you're from. <laughs> but we're going to fly into Portland, and we're going to go out to Hood River, and we're going to see all of the beautiful, beautiful waterfalls. And then we're going to go to the coast, which looks like it's going to be in the low 60s during the day and the 40s at night. I am loving it. We may nice. S- we may sleep on the beach, honey. Well, I'll tell you, it's <laughs> going to be probably around 90 degrees here. So Yuck. anything that gets us into cooler weather is all right by me. Absolutely. And actually, for the first time, we're going to wing it on the travel plans. We'll, yeah. I have... See where two, it takes us. That's right. I have two nights, the first two nights, tomorrow night and... Monday night. And then we have no hotel until the convention. Awesome. Oh, speaking of which, we're going to be at the Mother Earth News Fair in Albany, Oregon. And that is going to be on... The 4th and the 5th. Of June. So if you'd like to come by and say hi. And we're going to do also, by the way, on the 3rd of June, for a very small number of people, I hope... uh, (laughs) A suture class. We are actually going to be teaching suture class. First one we've taught on the West Coast since we did one in Bakersfield a while yeah. back. Wow, that was and a while back. That was a while back. And we are mm-hmm. excited about doing it and hoping to see some of our friends from Oregon. the West Coast, from the <laughs> Oregon coast. And to get more information on that, folks, you can visit net and go to the classes page. And scroll down. It's actually the top one. I just added three more classes. All right. Sounds good. Wow. We are going to be busy, busy, busy. Here and there, man. That's right. Until the fall for sure. Well, all I got to say is that we are the watchers on the wall. We're going to watch it all for you. We're going to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. But, of course, we have a commercial here. (laughs) Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? 
with a surly stallion. Well, our attorney says don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. Well, we'll call it a disclaimer. Okay. Not a commercial. (laughs) (laughs) All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't listen to a darn thing we say, or at least don't admit to listening to it. <laughs> but if some of this stuff makes sense to you, you might just have you might just have some common sense. Well, what do you think about that? So, hey. Yes? If you got some knowledge in your noodle... You have to share it with the class. Please. We learn as much from you as you do from us. So connect with us. It's easy. And here's the lovely Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can contact us anytime by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com or find us on Facebook at Survival Medicine Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We also have a couple Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. And our video cast the first and third Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at AroundTheCabin.com. And I also want to mention our other podcast. Our other podcast is American Survival Radio. It is current events. It's opinion. And boy, do we have opinions. <laughs> Lots of opinions. News, Co- politics. Uh, health, anything goes. Oh, yeah. Some gloves are off. Gloves are off. Punches are not pulled <laughs> is all I have to say. And I hope that you'll listen to it. Go to AmericanSurvivalRadio.com. It's part of the Genesis Communications Network. Another superbug that doctors have been dreading has just reached the United States. Yes, indeed, this is the year where antibiotic resistance is a big, big topic, and this topic is something that is not going to go away as more and more bacteria appear to be difficult to handle with regular antibiotics. CRE is a family of bacteria that is part of the latest flood of superbugs. And it's considered one of the deadliest ones because it causes infections that are resistant to more and more antibiotics than the average disease, even the average resistant disease. Researchers have found a person in the United States carrying bacteria resistant to a special antibiotic, an antibiotic of last resort called colistin, which is a development that top U.S. health officials say could mean the end of the road for antibiotics. That's a little bit much in my opinion, but it is what they're saying. The antibiotic-resistant strain was found last month in the urine of a 49-year-old Pennsylvania woman, and researchers determined that she carried a strain of E. coli, which is very common as a cause for urinary tract infections, and it was resistant to pretty much every antibiotic used, including the antibiotic colistin. The authors of this study that talked about this case wrote that the discovery heralds the emergence of a truly drug-resistant bacteria. Now, I'm going to have comments about that in a second, but let me tell you about colistin. 
Callistin is used for particularly dangerous types of superbugs, including a, a CRE, which is been called, which is nightmare bacteria, according to public health officials. And in some cases, superbugs like CRE kill up to 50% of patients that become infected. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention believe that it's one of the country's most urgent public health threats. Now, health officials says the case in Pennsylvania by itself isn't cause for panic. The strain in the woman was still treatable with some other antibiotics, but not colistin. And this colistin resistant gene, the gene is called MCR1, something I've talked about before, could spread to other bacteria that are already resistant to several antibiotics. It's the first time that this particular strain has been found in a person in the United States, but not the first time drug resistance or even total drug resistance has popped up in the U.S. Last year, a woman with multiple drug-resistant, sometimes called totally drug-resistant, tuberculosis was isolated in the NIH for a time, and it was thought that she had traveled to areas where that exists, uh, for example, rural areas of India. According to uh, CDC Director Tom Frieden, it basically shows us that the end of the road isn't very far away for antibiotics, that we may be in a situation where we have patient and intensive care units or patients getting urinary tract infections for which we have no treatment. He also says that he's had experience with the totally drug-resistant tuberculosis patients, and he says that it's a feeling of horror and helplessness when he can't do anything. Now, the woman with the urinary tract infection was treated in an outpatient military facility in Pennsylvania, according to the Defense Department, and samples were sent to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center for initial testing. So they're wondering what exactly is going on with this particular bacteria, and they're hoping that they're going to be able to figure out something to do. Food handlers, according to researchers, may be at higher risk. He feels that in places like China, where live animal markets are often in close proximity to other market stalls with other types of food, it might be more likely for the bacteria to spread. And other experts in infectious disease have called for speedier action to curb the overuse of antibiotics in livestock worldwide. Now, I've mentioned this on a number of occasions, that 80% of antibiotics are given not to humans, but to livestock, especially in the United States. And it's given not to deal with infections or other illnesses. It is given to make them grow faster. For some reason, giving antibiotics makes animals and livestock in particular grow faster, gets them to market earlier, and increases the profit margin, the bottom line for big agriculture. And so this is something that's a big issue for me. There are a lot of countries that do not allow antibiotics to be given to their livestock. Denmark is one. And we haven't seen issues with uh, disease uh, coming from this type of food. So in my opinion, it is purely to make these animals grow faster, get on the market faster, and improve the bottom line for a lot of these companies. So I, there is some hope. Uh, some companies like Tyson have said that they're going to decrease the use of antibiotics, maybe not use antibiotics altogether over the course of time, and I'm hoping that that indeed will happen. Now, you might have heard that there are no new antibiotics coming down the pipeline, and that actually isn't true. There is 
indeed a rare bit of good news, and that is the discovery of the first truly new antibiotic in decades. Uh, it's called Texobactin. That's T-E-I-X-O-B-A-C-T-I-N. Wasn't born in a laboratory. It was found just in the dirt beneath your feet. Researchers have suspected that the soil's bacteria might have a lot to teach us regarding how to fight disease. And indeed, the truth of the matter is, is that scientists have figured out how to grow some previously unculturable bacteria using, bacteria using an electronic isolation chip. And this isolation chip is allowing them to find new antibiotics. Texobaxin is one of them. Now, they claim that these new antibiotics have no resistance issues because they've never been used before. And Texobactin apparently works well against organisms that have become hardened to standard antibiotics like Staph aureus and maybe tuberculosis. There are a lot of uncultured bacteria in the soil, bacteria that we haven't really investigated yet. And so this new method of isolating bacteria from the soil may lead to a number of new antibiotics over the course of time. So the end of antibiotics is, I think, a little premature. I think it's just a matter of time before we start using some of these previously uninvestigated bacteria to put together some new medications. Now, in a survival setting, you may be, as the medic for your family or perhaps even a survival group, may be called upon to deal with infections. And antibiotics are essential tools for success in long-term survival. Of course, the government is now, because of their concerns about resistance, going to most likely decrease your access to such antibiotics. They're going to start with livestock antibiotics, but don't be surprised if they move on to things like fish antibiotics and bird antibiotics, which are the things that I talk about and that you can get without a prescription for your medical storage at this point. But because of antibiotic, because antibiotic resistance is such an issue, 2 million diagnosed cases of that reported in the U.S. just in 2013, well, you know, there has to be some kind of strategy and you have to know how to use antibiotics wisely. Now, there are reasons to use them, reasons not to use them, and you, of course, you want to use them only for bacteria, viruses, like most colds, for example, like colds and, and most respiratory infections, really. Those are not going to be treated with antibiotics, and it's important for you to realize that. Now, it doesn't mean that I think that antibiotics aren't useful. In survival scenarios, there are going to be a lot of avoidable deaths that can be treated with antibiotics. Now, you'll save some lives by having a good supply of these drugs in your storage. Now, however, if you use antibiotics for every minor ailment that comes around, you're going to run out very quickly, and that is bad. You're, you're sort of a quartermaster when you're the medic in a survival setting. You want to wisely dispense what is obviously going to be a limited and very precious supply of life-saving drugs, so you got to walk a fine line between what we call observant management, which is essentially doing nothing and just watching, and aggressive management, which is doing everything. So liberal antibiotics, liberal use of antibiotics is a pretty poor strategy, and it's that's for a few reasons. One, because of the spread of resistant bacteria. That is a big problem. There is also the chance for allergies. There are a lot of people that are allergic to certain antibiotics, penicillin, mostly among them. 
that's a big issue. And of course, if you're trigger happy with antibiotics, you're going to make diagnosing an illness more difficult if you give antibiotics before you're sure what medical problem you're actually dealing with. That's called masking the condition. In other words, symptoms could be temporarily improved that could have helped you know what disease your patient had because you gave them antibiotics. It may improve the condition, but it may not cure the condition because it's not the right antibiotic. And that costs you valuable time in determining what the actual correct treatment is. So you know that judicious use of antibiotics under your close supervision especially is necessary to fully utilize their benefits. Make sure that you use them with great care Great caution and only when absolutely necessary. Discourage your group members from using these drugs without first consulting you. And in normal times, seek a qualified medical professional. Don't treat yourself with antibiotics. Save those antibiotics for circumstances where there may be no doctor or hospital available to you. Now, our next bit of news is the craziness that's occurring with regards to the Zika virus, not because the virus itself is killing a zillion people like the Ebola virus did, but because it is causing all sorts of issues with regards to pregnant women and, of course, their babies. Their babies are being born with uh, small heads. Thousands of them have been born in the country of Brazil with a condition called microcephaly. When the head is small, the, well, the brain is small also, and those children oftentimes have permanent mental handicaps. It is a big issue, and now there is an additional controversy, and we got, we're going to explore that a little bit for you. Amy? In August, Brazil expects to host 500,000 visitors at the Rio 2016 Olympic Games. But instead of anticipating a global sports carnival in the heart of carnival. South Carnival, did you hear the way I said that? Uh -huh, yeah, I like that. <laughs> in the heart of South America's most exciting city, concerned athletes and physicians are obsessed with one word: Zika. Absolutely. Good guess. Zika, Zika, Zika. You are so right. The mosquito-borne virus linked to thousands of heartbreaking cases of microcephaly in Brazil has been declared a public health emergency of international concern by the World Health Organization. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, has issued travel advisories for more than 25 countries, including Brazil, recommending that pregnant women or women planning to get pregnant soon please postpone traveling to Zika-affected areas. They say that because of this, some people are calling on the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, to cancel the Olympic Games. Cancel, folks, cancel. Writing in Forbes, New York University professors Arthur Kaplan and Lee Engel said that the current Zika containment plan spraying for mosquitoes at Olympic venues is a risky, maybe even crazy, approach. The IOC needs to either move the games, postpone them, or cancel them. Prevention is the best course in the face of a serious threat to humanity. But Rio 2016 spokesperson Mario Andrada denied that the option is even on the table. No way 
It's impossible to do that. And he said it emphatically. Yes. Impossible? Well, maybe, but it's sure unlikely that Brazil's going to decide to cancel anything. We sure know that. The Rio 2016 Olympics, that they've already cost the country between 10 and 20 billion dollars on the construction of 10 brand new sporting venues and massive upgrades to Rio's transportation infrastructure putting the number maybe closer to 20 billion. Except that our manager went to Rio recently and said there is absolutely no way that any of this is going to be finished for the Olympics. So in addition to Zika, we have the whole issue of it's just not going to be ready. It should it's going be, to be a disaster. It's going is to what be it's going to be. Frankly, that's the only description. The only way for Brazil, honestly, to recoup these losses is $20 billion that theoretically they've already spent on hosting the Olympics is to cash in on foreign tourists. Not only does Brazil expect the flood of these tourists for the games themselves and hopes that a festive image promoted throughout the Olympics will raise the nation's status as an attractive tourist destination for many years. Now, it's something you think would already have happened after Brazil hosted the 2014 Soccer World Cup there. Eh. But what about the IOC, the International Olympic Committee? Couldn't it intervene and kill the games? Well, probably. Ask, <laughs> ask the lawyers. One said if they tried, there'd be massive legal action on behalf of Rio and Brazil against the IOC. Well, that's because they want the money. They've Absolutely. spent money and they want to recoup it. They're looking to get a reward and money dropping from the sky. Calling off the Olympics would mean stopping half finished buildings in their tracks, yep. canceling all sorts of contracts. Refunding tourists or admission fees. They're Hotels, just all, airfare. Oh, boy. Can what, you imagine? What a mess. All the restaurants that have prepped up and tried to maybe make their areas a little bit bigger and get in, ordered some extra food. I mean, this just has repercussions. People who have ordered and are planning on selling trinkets, souvenirs for the Olympics. You imagine someone who's got a stack of T-shirts in oh, the yeah. warehouse. For an idea of the backlash triggered by canceling Olympic construction contracts, in January, the Rio city government scrapped a deal with construction companies tasked with building the Olympic tennis stadium. Well, not only is the consortium of these construction companies suing the Rio government, but laid-off construction workers are protesting outside the unfinished venue, and they've lit fire to a number of shipping <laughs> containers. The Olympics have been canceled before. I mean, they've been canceled five times before, but usually because of a world war. war right. Wars, Never yeah. because of a public health concern. <laughs> Despite all this, the call to cancel the Olympic Games isn't going away. And here are some good reasons. Well, first, sending 500,000 people from 180 countries to the center of an epidemic of a poorly understood disease might create a global pandemic. And when these people return from Brazil to all over the world... And go to their native countries, they can spread the disease well, there. They, they Especially might, in the many countries that have Aedes mosquitoes. Sure. They might as well send vials of, of Zika virus everywhere. That is probably... Feed, a, a, feed a, them to mosquitoes and let them bite everybody. Yes. And that's probably a more economic way of spreading the disease. Too many Christmas. There's also a number of other issues, though. A massive doping scandal could ban at least 30 athletes from 12 countries and six sports from participating in the Olympics. Some Russians already have been outed for using illegal Do doping, drugs. Doping, right. drugs. Right. Exactly. Pump, pumping them up. As well as some of the athletes from Kenya. And Kenya may not be able to compete at all. And Russia may not compete at all. 
So here's another scandal. This, this time it's a political one. Brazil's president has been impeached. And not only that, more than half of the members of Brazil's Senate are also under investigation for corruption. And on top of that, the Brazilian economy, it's in free fall already. And the Olympics, if it's financially unsuccessful, is going to plunge it even further into the abyss. Now, you've heard, don't drink the water. Well, you hear this advice every time you go to a foreign country, right? But this time they mean it. There's raw sewage in main waterways that Brazil hasn't cleaned up. And it could make a lot of people sick, especially tourists that aren't used to drinking that kind of water. And speaking of infrastructure, as you mentioned, Brazil is way behind on finishing theirs. There's an extension on the metro line that's supposed to take tourists to all these events, and it is nowhere near finished. That means traffic, well, it ain't going to be pretty in the city of Rio. And the quality of the construction of some of that infrastructure seems to be falling apart, has already killed people when a brand new bridge used for cycling collapsed. Wow. But seriously, guys, it's the Zika virus. It's the Zika virus, dummy. Can we list some more reasons why we shouldn't have it in Brazil? You've got quite the list here. But again, folks, Zika is number one. Well, would you go to Liberia during the Ebola epidemic? I don't Um, think so. Only in a hazmat suit. There you go, right. (laughs) Yet, the IOC's medical commission still says we remain confident there'll be a safe environment for a successful and enjoyable Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro. Baloney, cancel or move the Olympics. I'll bet there are a lot of countries that are underutilizing all these expensive venues they built for previous Olympics. Make the event truly global by having it in a number of countries instead of having it be one big commercial for a particular one. To have a massive sporting event in the middle of an epidemic zone is just plain unethical. It might just be crazy. I think it's more crazy. Meanwhile, in the U.S., federal, state, and local health officials try to get the jump on the mosquito-borne Zika virus by pilfering money from wherever they can, while Congress haggles over exactly how much money is actually needed. Guess what? They don't agree with the Obama administration. (laughs) I'm shocked. (laughs) Shocked. Completely shocked. Well, with financial help slow and coming, health officials are shifting resources, they're setting priorities, and not just in states where mosquitoes are starting to buzz. You know, all but six states so far have seen travel-associated cases of Zika. And Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of the National Institute of Health, says that he's stealing money from himself to try to deal with Zika virus. He's raided his agency's malaria, tuberculosis, and influenza programs to try to fund a Zika vaccine. He needs more cash by the end of June just to keep the vaccine on schedule, and there's no guarantee that those other critical programs will recoup about $20 million that he's taken from them. He said that if he doesn't get some more funding soon, there's going to be a real problem. But the funding pleas have gone unanswered. The Congress and the Obama administration have had trouble dealing with and agreeing with the amount of money that's actually necessary. And now Congress is out of session. So there's going to be an additional delay. That's not so good with summer approaching. The Centers for Disease Control in response has shifted another 44 million bucks to Zika from emergency preparedness grants that help state and local health departments with flu outbreaks and hurricanes and other kinds of natural disasters. 
So this is a big issue. The Obama administration had already shifted $600 million. Where are they getting all this money? For fun, from funds for Ebola flare-ups in West Africa and other areas. The president said that lifetime care for a child born with Zika-caused brain damage, that microcephaly I was talking about, may cost up to $10 bucks. Governor Rick Scott of our home state of Florida said the threat of a Zika outbreak should trigger the same response as an approaching hurricane. He's lobbying Congress for more resources. So is Marco Rubio, a Republican senator from Florida and former presidential candidate. He says it's a mistake for Congress to try and deal with Zika on the cheap. Now, the funny thing is that President Obama already has the authority to take money he needs from other sources. The only problem is the sources are the foreign slush funds that he uses to give foreign aid to our, quote, allies, unquote. But he won't do that, not even if it means putting us at risk for an epidemic. You want to know something? It's not like he hasn't done it before. He did it just last year. And for what? To assist in dealing with climate change. Yep, you guessed it, climate change. Hey, you know that Zika virus cases have tripled tripled recently in the United States, and we're watching and seeing what's going to happen this summer as warm weather hits all of the 30 states that Zika virus mosquitoes, the Aedes mosquitoes, have been found in. The CDC expects a cluster of cases in a number of warm weather cities in the long, hot summer, and so we have written a book. It's called The Zika Virus Handbook. explains all you need to know about the epidemic in a calm, no-nonsense, no-panic fashion. The book gives you a solid plan of action for Zika protection that can be easily followed. All this from a physician that has decades of experience as an obstetrician in his early life and also is a well-known writer on medical preparedness. The book isn't just about that, though. It also outlines other pandemic diseases, past and present. Like many pandemic diseases, there are a lot of controversial theories about why Zika has become a threat. And you'll find these and commentary on how plausible they might be in the Zika Virus Handbook. The Zika Virus Handbook is available at Amazon.com. Hey, do you ever get one of those moments where your brain is just full and you just can't take in anymore? Well, you know what? I have reached that point and we are going to take just a very short interlude. We'll take just a few minutes for these messages and we'll see you right back. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. These days of terrorists, active shooters, and worse, every school, workplace, and homestead should have the equipment necessary to save a life. The first aid bleeding control module is meant to provide the items you need to stop hemorrhage. It's compact, lightweight, and has easy-to-read waterproof instructions. If every teacher's desk, worker station, and car or truck had one, have no doubt, it would save lives. Available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net.
And we're back. You're listening to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, Joe Alton, MD, and Amy Alton, ARNP. Hey, you know, I have a great deal of respect for some of these guys that go on television. And some of them, I will say, some of them are absolutely nuts to actually do some of the things that they do on television. And that doesn't mean that I necessarily have respect for the producers that actually put together these shows. I believe that they try to make people look foolish and they might put people in dangerous situations. I remember Cody Lundin stating exactly that about the folks from Dual Survival. And there's a new show coming out, or there's a show, actually, it's not new, it's been out for a few seasons, that's called Naked and Afraid. And Naked and Afraid is one of those shows that you have to cringe a little bit when you take a look at it. These people are stripped and I think that they get one item to take with them and they have to be out in the woods or out in some desolate area for three weeks or more and survive and also with somebody that they might or might not get along with. And as you know, we travel throughout the country. We meet all sorts of people and we have actually met a number of these guys from Naked and Afraid. Uh, I remember treating a wound on the shoulder of Jason Zabo, who was in one of the episodes. And I'll tell you, he had uh, a wound that needed to be dealt with, and it it had been around for quite a while. So these guys really are pretty stoic. And another fellow that I met that was on the show is named Clint Javoin, J-I-V-O-I-N, And Clint is actually really an awesome, nice guy. Jason is also, most of these people are actually really nice nice people. And they certainly grab on to a good amount of notoriety by going on this show. And they're certainly in demand that a lot of preparedness and disaster expos like the ones that we often go to. And... I had the opportunity, and I was really fortunate to have the opportunity to meet Clint and get to know him, really super guy, and talk to him about his experiences on the show and basically what his plans are for the future. I think he's uh, a young man with a lot of potential, and I hope that we get to see him more in the future uh, with his clothes on, of course, this time around. But here is my interview with our good friend Clint Javoin. Okay, we are here with Clint Javoin of Naked and Afraid, one of our good friends, and boy, he really showed what he was made of when he went through that show, and he's here with us at the Richmond NPS Expo, where a lot of our prepper community has come together, all sorts of great stuff here, exhibitors and speakers like Clint, and well, let's find out a little bit about Clint Javoin, find out who he is and what what led him to on the path, what led him on the path that he is on right now. So, Clint, tell me a little bit about yourself. How's it going? Uh, let's see. I, I grew up in a little small town in Indiana. Just grew up kind of playing in the woods. Um, fast forward to senior year of high school. I started seeing these survival shows on TV. Uh-huh. And, and realized that I hadn't been camping. I'd kind of been taking it a little step beyond that my whole life. 
Um, and there was a niche and a possible career path called survival skills. Yes. And, uh, and, that, and a lot of, we're seeing that here a lot. And that, it really piqued my interest. And, you know, I thought I wanted to go into the forest service. And, you know, I, what I really wanted to do was teach people wilderness skills. Um, so I, I hit a couple dead ends kind of trying to pursue that. Um, traveled around the country playing music for about four or five years as a songwriter. And I made a phone call one day, and here I am now. Now, what did you have to do to audition for this role that uh, you played in Naked and Afraid? This actually came shortly after I had started working um, at Willowhaven. I started teaching with Creek Stewart up there. Um, and, and through there, they had found me for the show. So the show, they just approached me with the concept, said, hey, it's been greenlit by Discovery. Um, the cast it for the first season. They told me kind of the ins and outs of it. And I said, it sounds like a good time. It sounds it sounds like a heck of a time, but I don't know how good it was. Tell me a little bit about some of the challenges that you had to face during your time on the show. Overall, it was um, it was a very, let's say, exhausting experience um, just because you're not only out there doing what you have to do to survive, you also are in front of cameras, and there are certain needs that they have um, as far as pulling you off a project that you may be frustrated with, and you're trying to get this going because it's getting dark, but they need to do an interview with you right now. Um, the, you know, the worst thing we dealt with was probably the bugs, hands down, the, the sand fleas, gnats. Um, they're called cheetahs down there in Panama. Yeah. I was on an island off the coast of Panama. Um, they, they were they were terrible. Um, but other than that, the constant agony of being eaten alive, um, you know, the challenges were just your typical shelter, water, fire, food. Um, lots of rain, not a lot of firewood. Well, there's not there's more of a challenge because you weren't alone. And tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I was I was paired up with an other wilderness instructor from New Hampshire. Um, and we, we had to kind of, you know, stay stay civil, which we did a pretty good job of. Um, there's a lot more than you see on the show. But we, we yeah. overall, we got along great, still good friends. Um, you know, you build a bond doing something like that. Now, that um, doesn't yeah. always happen. I mean, there's some people that seem like they really can't stand each other. Yeah, yeah. From what from what I hear, you know, there's, there's definitely some pairings that don't work out quite as well as ours did. Um, but yeah, we, 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 I think we had a really good time, you know, and once you establish kind of your shelter fire, you got some traps set, you're eating pretty decent, um, you're, you're really just kind of inconvenient camping at that point. Um, and, you know, you got a campfire at night that, that mm-hmm. keeps you at least in that mindset. Now, do you ever wonder why they insisted on your being naked? Ratings. Right. Um, that's, that's probably what they really were behind with it. Um, from my point of view, it just makes everything, it, it just takes away, um, a tool, you know, I, yes. I, can, I can do so much with my clothing other than it just being clothing. Of course, yes. Um, you know, mainly with the bugs, there were actually some times where I was looking at the crew. It was a small crew, a sound guy, a camera guy, um, and kind of like a field director writing things down as we did them. Um, but th- there were times where they were suffering, I think, more than us because they had clothing. Um, you know, we didn't have issues with, you know, trench foot and things like that. Um, yeah, because we we could just dry our feet out easily, right? And do that, um, so. right? But they then again, they did have like a, a ham sandwich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that must be that must have been so hard to see. Do you actually physically see these guys eating, or are they, are they nice enough to go out of view? 
when they do that. Well, you know, and I can only speak from my my experience, but our experience was, you know, we were on this island, huh. and they'd show up in the morning after it got light out, and they'd leave before it got dark. Um, so they would do a lot of that eating and stuff away from us. They'd go about an hour away at night. Um, but in the morning, you could definitely smell, like, peanut butter. And, like, you know, if you when your senses get that heightened out doing oh, that, yeah. I mean, I could pick up on, like, what they had for supper. And I believe it. I totally um, believe it. it. Was, so that, that was kind of annoying. And I did see a cooler one time. But it was way, <laughs> way down. I saw them carrying on shore. I don't know where it went after that. But they, they, they were pretty respectful in that sense. Now, since since you've been on Naked and Afraid, You've, you've traveled a, a, an interesting road. You've been going to a lot of these events. And tell us a little bit about how that's been and, and a little bit about, you know, what what's in the future for you, Clint. Okay. Uh, well, you know, I I was, you know, teaching when, when I went out to Panama for the show. When I got back, I continued down that route. Um, I've been traveling a lot. Um, I, I kind of I subcontract out, basically. I freelance. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm a freelance wilderness survival instructor. I don't know if that's a thing, but that's that's what my my taxes say. Well, hey, you know, <laughs> I, I'll tell you something that there are probably a lot of survival groups that would want to learn from your experience. That you have, you do have a lot of experience. Certainly, Willow Haven Outdoors, everybody's heard of, and Creek Stewart, and and you've worked with him, and you've shown your medal, M E T T L E. Uh, in terms of of surviving, so I think anyone out there who's listening, who would be interested in learning about how to survive out in the wild, I don't think they could find a better teacher than Clint Javoin. So tell me a little bit about how people can get a hold of you. I just okay. told these people yeah. they need to yeah. learn from you. Yeah, I guess they need to be able to find me. Um, yes, that's, yeah. you know the easiest way to find me is probably just through social media. I mean, I'm all over Facebook, all over Instagram. Um, I'm always posting wacky pictures of my backpacking adventures and <laughs> classes. We need to get a selfie before I leave. Remind me. Awesome. Um, that's 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 the best way to get a hold of me. Yes. All right. Well, you know what? This is something that you. I really feel that that you have that you have a niche would be very useful to anyone who wants to be. A, an effective survivor in times of trouble. And believe me, I think the times of trouble could easily be coming. We've got to be ready for just about anything that happens, and you may have to do it in the wilderness. And so, Clint, Clint, give us just a couple of, before you go, give us just a couple of tips that you think that would be really useful for someone that's going to be, let's say, lost in the woods. Um, well, have to live there for a period of time. The, the, you know, the you're first, the guy to ask. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I, I always start out with talking with is, you know, know, know where you're going. Tell at least two people where you're going. All right. Dress appropriately and tell those people when you're going to be back. Um, I think if you cover just those two or three things right there, you, you're, you're way better off than, you know, someone who goes out there and gets, you know, stuck in a canyon yeah. with a rock on their arm. Um, you know, and that. Um, and, and, you know, and secondly, you know, gear's great. Um, you know, I kind of come in with the primitive skills kind of on the other end of gear, um, but I'm a firm believer of if you've got the gear, use the gear. I should, unless you're on a TV show or teaching someone else, um, you should never have to make fire with sticks. There's no reason for it. Um, and also, if you have, if you are going to carry gear, you know, make sure that you use it ahead of time. Don't wait until you absolutely need it, you know, to save your life to try out that, that knife or that barrel rod for the first time. Wow, that is such important advice because you know what? 
a lot of people, we, you know that we have, uh, of course, an entire line of medical kits, and so many people buy our kits, and the next thing you know, they're on the top shelf of the closet, and people feel, okay, now I'm medically prepared, but they never even open the kit to take a look at it. And so we always tell people, you know what, take our kit, open it up, break it down, put it together in a way that makes sense for you, and everybody's plan for medical preparedness may be a little bit different, but they need to know how to use the items they have. And that, I think, is some of the best advice that you, that you can give someone. Clint, where are you going to be next? Oh, where am I next? Man, I am going to be back in Indiana for the summer teaching. I'm going to be teaching um, teen wilderness survival programs all over Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, in the months of June and July. Um, and I'm, I'm teaching with Escape the Woods, which is something kind of new that Creek and I are, are, are both doing. Um, it's kind of like a yeah. I've heard about motor. that. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's yeah, real quick. It's kind of like a tough motor or a warrior dash. You know, it, a lot of us are familiar with those. Um, it's a skills challenge where it's a three day event, and it's you learn, you know, and then you prove that you learned it in the competition, and you win a bunch of prizes. So we were just in North Carolina, actually not too far from where we're at now. Uh -huh. uh, this time last weekend, and had a great event. And it's just a lot of fun. It's family friendly, um, and, and you know, you don't. You don't always have to be miserable. You know, yeah, go out and test your skills and maybe, you know, put yourself in an uncomfortable position. But you can do it safely at some of these events just by putting yourself on a time restraint, um, you know, or skipping a meal a day. Well, I think that that sounds awesome. I'd love to see those events. So uh, definitely check out Clint Javoin's Facebook page. That's J-I-V-O-I-N, Clint with a C, C-L-I-N-T. And Clint, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us, and Thanks you know, the best me. of luck in the future. Yeah, it's always okay. great bumping you're, you guys. You're an awesome, awesome guy. Well, that was our friend Clint Javoin of Naked and Afraid. I certainly hope that we'll see him. I told him to put together a podcast because he's always got a lot of interesting things to say, and I'm pretty sure that people would want to listen to his podcast. I hope he puts one together, and I think that. He has a bright future ahead of him. I hope we get to see him again. Hey, those of you who listen to Jack Spierko's The Survival Podcast will know that I'm one of Jack's expert counsel, and many times I get medical questions that come from his listeners, and I like to pass on information if it happens to be a question that I think is useful for our friends on the Survival Medicine Hour. So here's one that I want you to take a good listen to. It's about depression. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones, also the founder of doomabloom.net, where you'll find over 800 completely free posts, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness for any disaster. This week's question for the expert council is from Chad in Ohio, who asks... Is there an herbal or homeopathic method for treating depression? I haven't sought a diagnosis. Part of the reason for that is that I don't want to spend the rest of my life on pharmaceuticals. Chad, I certainly don't blame you. No one wants to be tied to taking medications when there are other options available. Almost everyone experiences depression, often due to specific stressful circumstances. We call this situational depression, or in medicalese, a stress response syndrome, and it's the most likely form of depression you'd see in a survival setting. But it's only one reason why a person may become depressed. There's depression, and there's major depression, a serious condition that can lead to an inability to function 
or even suicide. Sufferers experience not only a depressed mood, but also have difficulty performing simple daily tasks, like just getting out of bed. They'll lose interest in their usual activities. They'll experience extreme fatigue. They might have little appetite, or on the opposite end, they might binge eat, and they can't sleep. In severe circumstances, they might even consider harming themselves or committing suicide, either intentionally or by acting recklessly and without care for their well-being. The exact cause of major depression from a chemical standpoint is thought to be due to irregularities in brain chemicals called neurotransmitters that regulate mood and behavior. These include things like serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Now, various medications that manipulate these neurotransmitters are available by prescriptions such as Prozac, Zoloft, and others. But if you are interested in trying alternative methods, you might consider vitamin supplements like B12, folic acid, tryptophan, and omega-3 antioxidants. They may be effective in some sufferers. Let's talk about a few of them. 5-HTP is 5-hydroxytryptophan. It's a naturally produced substance in the body, and it's used in the formation of the neurotransmitter serotonin, and that's needed to maintain normal mood. There are supplements that you can use. Now, cold water fish such as salmon, sardines, and anchovies, they are a great source of omega-3 fatty acids. You can take fish oil supplements or cod liver oil. They are indeed thought to be very helpful for depression. Avoid these, however, if you're on blood thinners. SAM-E, S-adenosyl-L-methionine, is a compound found naturally in the human body also that may increase levels of neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine. And several studies have found SAM-E to be effective, or at least more effective than placebo, for depression. Zinc. Zinc is a nutrient that's linked with mental functions. Low levels of blood zinc are more associated with depression, and that's according to Nutrition Neuroscience. They believe that taking a 25 milligram zinc supplement daily for 12 weeks might help reduce depression symptoms. Now, of course, there's also the herb St. John's Wort. St. John's Wort has been used with some success in non-pregnant adults. Avoid it in pregnant women and children. And it's very helpful in mild to moderate depression, so much so that it's been called the herbal Prozac. Other herbs such as passionflower, valerian, ginkgo biloba, and a number of others have been put forth as possibly helpful, but the hard data isn't there yet for most of these, so I can't say too much about that. Some lifestyle changes might also be in order to help with your depression. Here are some. Get into a routine. Depression can strip away the structure from your life, and one day just sort of melts into the next. So set an easy, easy daily schedule to help get you back on track. Say a morning walk around the block on a regular basis, that might be a good start. Set some goals. When you're depressed, you may feel like you can't accomplish anything. You have no hope for the future, and that makes you feel worse about yourself. So push back against this by setting simple daily goals for yourself. Learn some new vocabulary words. Read a few pages of a humorous book. Wash the dishes. Sweep the front porch. Simple stuff like that. Of course, exercise is always helpful. Exercise actually temporarily boosts feel-good chemicals called endorphins. It also may have long-term benefits for people with depression. Now, how much exercise do you need? Not that much. Just walking or riding a bike a few times a week can help. Eat healthy. There is no magic diet that fixes depression, but choosing healthy foods is a good idea for just about anyone and can help control weight gain for those who overeat when they're depressed. Eat a banana or an apple instead of a candy bar. Make sure you get those omega-3 fatty acids into your daily meals. 
Now get enough sleep. That's very important. Depression can make it hard to get enough shut-eye, and too little sleep can make depression worse. What can you do? Make a routine. Go to bed. Get up at the same time every day. Try not to nap. Take all the distractions out of your bedroom. No computer, no TV. Block out all the noise and light you can. You'll get more sleep and your mood might improve. Don't forget to take on some responsibilities. When you're depressed, you may want to pull back from life. Nothing could be worse. Stay involved. Have daily responsibilities like a job that takes your mind off your issues. Volunteer if you can't work. Staying involved and having people depend on you at home or work can help you maintain a lifestyle that can counter depression. And don't forget to challenge negative thoughts. In your fight against depression, a lot of the work is changing how you think. When you're depressed, you leap to negative conclusions. You think you're worthless? Well, it's just not true. Don't forget to use relaxation methods to help. Meditation, yoga, massage therapy, music, guided imagery. These are all just some of the methods that might help. Look them up online and see if you can give them a try. Chad, I hope this helps. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Oh, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. Follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show, Facebook on our group Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, or our page at Doom and Bloom, and our two podcasts, The Survival Medicine Hour at blogtalkradio.com, and our latest, The Current Events Podcast, American Survival Radio, at americansurvivalradio.com. Thanks a lot. That's all the time we have. We hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you'll see us in Oregon this week. If you are in the area, come by to the Mother Earth News Fair. See you next week. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.